A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. While Westminster is still on holiday, political leaders from around the world have decamped to Biarritz in southern France for a meeting of the G7. So I thought what we'd do in the episode this week is have a chat with Charles Bremner, the Times Paris correspondent, who hot-footed it. It's quite a long way down to Biarritz to um, to the uh, G7. And Charles joins me on the line now. Charles, first of all, wh- whereabouts in France are you right now? I'm in the McDonald's uh, just off the motorway on the Bordeaux bypass on my way back from Biarritz. I left Biarritz an, an hour and a half ago. And Never uh, let it be said that being a Times foreign correspondent is anything less than glamorous. So let's start. We'll, we'll talk about your, your the, how your job works and that sort of thing in a moment. But let's start with the reason you are uh, travelling back from Biarritz, the G7 summit. If people weren't paying attention, or even if they were paying attention to what was going on, watching the sort of TV news uh, in the UK, it all just seemed to be Boris Johnson larking about a bit. Not, uh, you know, he went for a swim and he met some people. But of course, this is a proper, proper international summit. So, what, what were the sort of big takeaways from the summit for you? The main thing that one noticed was that the, the summit worked extraordinarily well compared with certainly with the expectations that everybody was predicting. I think we even used the word a, a, a tumultuous. It was expected to be a, a disruptive summit because of Donald Trump, and it turned out that it was quite smooth by in by in terms of expectations they didn't agree very much but they there was all, a lot of sweetness and light amongst all the players that was the most extraordinary thing is there a sense that donald trump's learning how to behave himself a bit because it, it was after a previous summit in canada where he, the the wheels of uh, air force one were barely off the tarmac and he was tweeting about how awful it'd been and he didn't agree with anything that the world leaders had agreed and that sort of thing is he is he mellowing a bit on the world stage he may be mellowing a little bit, but it was very much a summit about managing Donald Trump. In fact, all the others have learned to handle Trump a bit better. <laughs> it, it, what, what the French were rather jokingly calling this uh, the G2 summit because it consisted of Macron trying to keep Mr. Trump happy all the time. And the others fell into, into, into line with that. Everybody was very careful not, not to upset Trump. That was the big the big fear that he would do what he did in Quebec last year, which is tear up the communique as soon as he left and uh, accuse his host of being dishonest and a liar, you know, Justin Trudeau. Mac- Macron used absolute uh, extraordinary stage management to flatter Trump. And what sort of thing did he do? To, how did he go about doing that? On the very first day, as soon as Trump arrived, Macron whisked him off to a one-on-one lunch in which they, did, they didn't even have interpreters present didn't have staff and Macron told Trump how thrilled he was and how flattered he was to have him at the summit and how he was the most important person at the summit. 
<laughs> That's all you need to do to keep Donald Trump aside. And you talked about how in Quebec last year, the communique, the sort of the written down list of things that they'd agreed was torn up by Donald Trump. Macron's way round preventing that happening this time is basically not to even try and agree very much. Yes, Macron set expectations very low and even went out of his way at the beginning to say that they were meeting at a time of, of difficulties and conflict and you couldn't expect very much. And then he pulled the rabbit out of the hat. He did very, very well. He, in his terms anyway, in, in European terms, he managed to, for instance, to bring in the Iranian foreign minister in a surprise, almost a surprise. He told Trump about a few hours before on Sunday to take part in talks on the edge of the summit with French officials. But that was a, a psychological shock in a way, which forced everybody to concentrate on Iran and settling the problem over the nuclear program. And Trump signed on to that yesterday, which was, was perhaps the biggest surprise. He said that he could accept Macron's idea of meeting President Rouhani of Iran, which is a far cry from sort of threatening, threatening nuclear war a few weeks ago. <laughs> I know, the, the trouble is that you, you, you never feel like Donald Trump is nailed down into one position and he could yet, you know, flip back into something else. Um, what about the other world leaders um, who were in France? Did they, I mean, you, you said it was like the G2 is really just about recording Trump, but what about the other world leaders around the, the table? Let's start with Boris Johnson. How do you think he did in his first sort of debut on the world stage? Johnson didn't do badly. The view that in the UK you must have had was obviously extremely loaded in favour of Johnson, Johnsonology. The rest of the summit didn't really see Boris Johnson as, as, as a major player, as, 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 a, as a, a very big figure. He's a, a new boy. He was making his first outing in a foreign context, in a summit context. He did, didn't do badly because he toned down the joking. Um, I think he realises that Making jokes and puns doesn't go down well with the Japanese Prime Minister or, or, <laughs> or Chancellor Merkel. He even even when he was even very diffident with with Trump when he challenged Trump publicly on trade, which is the the mainest point of uh, contention between Trump and the rest. Uh, Boris Johnson used the expression "sheep-like." He said, "Can I make a sheep-like intervention?" He he wanted to be very 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 light on it. So he was being very careful and um, on his best behaviour. And he didn't get the uh, the eye roll from uh, Angela Merkel. I mean, you've written about this in the Times. That he, so far, he seems to have managed to to, to not wind up Angela Merkel in, in public, at least to the extent that she she's exasperated with him. That's true. I mean, Boris Johnson knows that the EU leaders, that the main ones, were being uh, Angela Merkel and uh, Emmanuel Macron, as well as uh, Conte, the Italian. They were not going to make any particular concessions to British demands. This wasn't a tr uh, summit about Brexit. They've fixed the European position. And uh, it, 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 or as far as Europe is concerned, the Brexit question is about detail. They're waiting, first of all, to hear what Boris Johnson proposes on the Irish backstop. And in terms of the relationship between Boris Johnson and those other EU leaders, did you, I mean... Uh, uh, any time, whether it was Macron or Merkel, said anything which wasn't, you know, bugger off. Uh, he wasn't. Oh, there's a there's a glimmer of hope there. There's there's movement. There's something that might be happening. Did you detect any uh, real change in the European position towards uh, Britain's demands? There's absolutely no change. There was no change last week. The UK media misinterpreted what the the Germans and the French said last week. 
there was perhaps a little nuance. Um, Angela Merkel is always in favor of agreement, but she changed nothing in terms of the, the ground rules for an agreement or the, or the requirements of the EU for Britain to, to change anything. The Merkel last week gave um, Boris Johnson 30 days to come up with a, a proposal on the uh, Irish backstop. Macron did the same. Macron fell in with the, the 30 days of uh, Mrs. Merkel. So they're just waiting because as far as the EU is concerned, Britain has not proposed anything. Well, and that, that, I suppose, is the key point, is that, yes, you said you've got 30 days to come up with something, but, I mean, the, the number of days is the easy bit. It's the coming up with it. <laughs> um, so far, Britain seems to have failed. Um, and what about the relationship between Macron and, and uh, Boris Johnson? Because Emmanuel Macron is sort of, he's tried to play the sort of bad cop to sometimes yes. Magla Merkel's good cop in the sort of the Brexit uh, tussling. Is he getting on with Boris Johnson? Macron makes a big effort to get on with everybody. He makes a point of trying to get inside the skin of his interlocutors. I suppose most leaders do that, but he, he tries very hard to understand Boris Johnson. Macron, as you know, is one of the rare recent French presidents to speak very fluent English, so they have no problem chatting. And Johnson's French is pretty good, although he deliberately puts on a very strong English accent. In a, a, a Churchillian accent, as people say, to make it short. <laughs> Are the people in France aware of Boris Johnson? Is it does it go beyond the sort of the political class, of the, the the cult of, of Boris Johnson? Yes, very much so. He's been a figure for quite a while. People, the French saw him in the London Olympics. He was known as Mayor of London. He's known for his rather um, boisterous side, to put it mildly. The French are not terribly polite about him. Uh, they they obviously use words like um, comic and clown. And uh, they, one of the headlines today is the, the dishevelled British leader. So far, they have not, the public opinion and via the media has not taken Mr. Johnson terribly seriously. And I, I was struck by a piece that you wrote over the weekend where you describe it, that the French have got their own version of having your cake and eat it. It's... Uh, well, the French is to have the, the butter and the money for the butter and the smile on the dairy, dairy maid's face. In fact, it goes a little bit further and it, it gets uh, a, a bit crude, and I won't repeat it on a, <laughs> on a family podcast. But I quite like the idea that we've got cakeism and they've got butterism. We can't even agree on the uh, on the culinary metaphor for what it is that Boris Johnson's going up to. Um, let's talk more broadly then about your, your sort of day job and what's going on in France at the moment. I'm struck that... It didn't seem like that long ago, all of my understanding of what was happening in France was that Macron was deeply unpopular, there were riots on the streets, France was sort of, you know, going down the plug hole. That seems to have done an almost 180-degree turnaround. Is that is that not, right? Not really. First of all, you shouldn't re- believe everything you hear and read about France. Uh, France, <laughs> France has a very stable political system. It was created that way in 1958 for and by General de Gaulle after great instability after the near-revolution and Algerian war. The president of France is absolutely guaranteed safe in his job for, for now five years. It was seven. So Macron doesn't have to worry about any kind of re-election until 2022. He, he can't be overthrown by a parliamentary vote. The idea that uh, a few demonstrators could overthrow him was absolute nonsense. He remains unpopular. All French presidents have been unpopular now for about 20 years or 30 years even while in office. It's a phenomenon of French politics that they reject their leaders very, very quickly. Uh, Macron's ratings didn't plunge quite as quickly as Sarkozy's did in 2007 or François Hollande in 2012 when he was elected. 
he retains a core of support amongst the urban, more prosperous classes, the educated classes, people who see Macron as, as an extraordinary um, symbol of, of, of hope for France because he's, well, he's 41, highly educated, and has a, a, a very outgoing view of the world. He, he's opposed by the, as you know, the, the, the more provincial, rural, less educated majority, I suppose. That That's where the, the underlying fissure split, uh, using French there, in, in French fissure, <laughs> in, in French society. And that's what he, the problem he's facing. I mean, presumably he doesn't even need to think about it yet. But do you think he will run again? I mean, cause five years as French president is pretty good. And if you just want to get stuff done without worrying about re-election, do you, do you think, or is it in the nature of all politicians that they w- would like to at least try to run again? I'm certain he wants to run again. I think we can all say he does definitely want to run again. He, at the moment, would not be re-elected probably, but you never know. There were the European elections in May, and he came very close to winning. His party came very close to winning, although his party almost doesn't exist. So uh, there's a a residual respect for the incumbent in France, even if even if he's unpopular. And, of course, because he came out of nowhere, essentially, with En Marche and his own uh, movement, and he, he you know blew apart the traditional parties in France, it's only sense that the, the left and the right in France have, have got a handle on how to deal with him. Are they, uh, I mean, you know, he, he benefited from the circumstances of them all being in their own particular mess when he was elected. Are, are they regrouping? And, I mean, you know, obviously the, the main... Uh, thing that will stop him becoming president is if someone else comes up with a better candidate. What's one of Macron's best pieces of luck is that the opposition is in, still in complete meltdown. It's chaos, both on the left and the right. The, the Socialist Party, which is the main centre-left movement, which had dominated the centre-left for the last 40, 50 years, is almost non-existent. The radical left led by uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the France unbowed, as we translated, La France Insoumise, are also in a state of decay because Mélenchon seems to be leaving it. So the the left is clear. A lot of the left, of course, has joined, the centre-left has joined Macron. On the conservative side, the Gaullist movement, which is now called the Republicans, it's had many different names, is in complete disarray. They've split amongst the nationalist populist side which is almost aligning with Marine Le Pen and then the more moderate wing which is aligning with Macron. Uh, People are resigning from the party, it has no real leadership. Macron is profiting from a vacuum. There is a a Green Party of course which is like in many parts of Europe like the UK is, is emerging on its own as a force but it's still very small. And what about his attitude to Britain? I mean, this is always the sort of love-hate relationship between Britain and France. Does he want to be a sort of friend of the UK? Is he actually sort of uh, just seeing the opportunity of while we're mucking about with Brexit, there are ways that he could exploit that to France's benefit? Well, as you pointed out, uh, there's a historic rivalry between the two countries and their brother enemies, as the French say. Uh, the, The French admire the British a lot but see them as the main adversary, as not just politically and economically, but culturally. Um, Macron is out, obviously, as any normal leader, to, to promote French interests. He's not at all prepared to make particular concessions to the UK. He's keen on keeping the UK inside this European sphere and not seeing Boris Johnson turn Britain into what Macron calls the vassal state of America. But... He's realist about uh, about Brexit. He says he would have preferred France would have preferred the UK to stay in. That's true, 
but now he accepts the UK is going to leave and he wants the UK out as fast as possible. It's all uh, fascinating stuff. In a sec, I want to talk to you about how your day job works, being a podcast correspondent for The Times. Uh, let's talk about that. We'll be back after this short break. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Charlie, chatting with uh, Charles Bremner, the Times Paris correspondent. Charles, you've been covering France now, is it for 20 years? Uh, uh, well, a bit more than that. I was a Reuters correspondent. <laughs> I almost shouldn't say it, in 1981 to 83 in Paris. And I've been with the Times in Paris most of the time since 1992. Wow. And in between then, you've been to New York, Washington, Moscow, Brussels, Mexico City. D- describe what life as a, as a foreign correspondent for the Times is like. Well, there, there are two of us, of course, Adam Sage, my colleague. We, we, we do it as a duo in Paris now. We operate, as most people do nowadays, rather... At, at a bit of a distance, um, using the internet a, a great deal more than we used to in the old days. In the old days, as a foreign correspondent, you'd have long lunches, and that was the main way of <laughs> obtaining information. And then you'd, uh, in the old, this is very old days, you'd, you'd go home, go back to your office every couple of days after lunch and tap out um, as a story, and uh, it would be typed onto telex and sent off to the newspaper. That's all gone, of course. The demise of the long lunch is something which is also keenly felt in Westminster as well. And so your job is to, I mean, presumably it's, it's to do more than just read what's online in French newspapers because people in London could do that. So yeah. how, what's your sort of, you know, you've been there a long time and the fact that, you know, you've seen presidents come and go and political crises and everybody predict the worst of France and it's all, you know, it's not turned out as bad at the end. Is, is that part of the job to sort of act as a sort of wise character? all to the paper back home the most important thing is foreign correspondent anywhere is to be plugged in into the country you're covering you shouldn't be operating as an outsider and as a foreigner in france this is extremely important because france is a country which requires you to be on the inside you can't work with bad french or with translators as some american correspondents have done in the past you can't go around with a strong british accent and saying look here my man i'm the times correspondent can you talk to me you, you have to fit in and talk 
like a French person and 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 be fairly humble. And but being plugged in also means being plugged into the people who count, uh, of course, I mean, the, the political world, the business world, and and the cultural showbiz world. And um, that takes time. It's interesting that, that, that your ability to sort of get on and get stories could come down to how good your French accent is. I'm quite, um, maybe that isn't that surprising given the French's attitude as we were just discussing uh, to the British. Well, France sees itself as a, a, a big power and a major coal of, of, of civilization and democracy. It doesn't see itself as as a, a satellite on an Anglo-Saxon world. It sees the French world as centering on global France. So it, it's, it's very important to, to get under that the French skin. So talk, talk us through what your average day might look like. What When do you have to start? I mean, you've got the advantage. I mean, I've done podcasts before with David Charter and people working in America. Obviously, they're, they're, the time difference plays havoc with their sort of average day. But presumably, you know, only an hour ahead, uh, you don't have to worry about that sort of thing. So how does your day sort of pan out? Pretty much the same as a political correspondent, for instance, in, in the UK, your own job. You start off with getting reading in in the morning very early into all the French media and, and newspapers commentating the political world and then setting up what the main story is going to be every day and then going out to talk to people when necessary and work on the story. France has a big input in the British media as a, a, with cultural news, with news about French life and the way the French do things. So that usually involves setting up in advance if you're going out to talk to somebody who's got a, a new way of producing wine or around etc. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you or um, some, some new French te- technical advance or I, I specialize a lot in aviation because that's my, my hobby. And so I, I spend a lot of time talking to people in the aviation world, whether Airbus or practicing pilots in, in the sports world. How much of what you do is following up what other people are doing? And how much is you, are you try to sort of find out new things from uh, what's happening in Paris? It's not so easy as, as a foreign correspondent to break new stories. It's uh, because you're always operating, operating at a slight remove. We are not on the inside inside track of, for instance, the Elysee Palace. Just a small example, this last week, Macron decided he would brief reporters on what he was going to say at the G7. They only invited French reporters. So the chance of having something new on that were, were uh, pretty slim. On the political and sort of diplomatic front, it's mainly nuance. It's picking up in advance what the French might be planning to do, for instance, about Brexit. We occasionally get feeds on that and lines on that that, 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 that help expand the story. On on other areas, it's fairly limited, but we, we do our best. And the main thing, as I say, is, is, is to have close contacts, friends who are in high places. And uh, that way you can at least... Um, convey with some precision what what is motivating what is what what the the feel of things are in paris and what impact has brexit had on your job are people i mean i suppose the 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 demands for sort of you know what does paris think of the latest brexit plan or whatever but it probably comes all the time but is it is it affected the way you do your job a british foreign correspondent seen differently it does to some extent, yes. Britain has seen to that. Britain has seen to be committed an act of disloyalty. That's how it's seen right across Europe. It's not just France. There's not a great deal of sympathy for the UK <laughs> behaviour, and especially the way 
Britain has negotiated or not negotiated the departure, and setting out terms and then having most of the terms met and then rejecting the, term, the terms again. You asked me about impact on us. There's quite, a, quite an impact in that our income is pounds, so it's come down, and I've applied for French citizenship. Ah, well, you know, well, that was going to be my, my next and sort of last question was that you've been in working in Paris for so long. Where do you consider to be home? Is, is, do you, you, you see the mindset of the UK being home or, or do you see Paris as being home? I see Paris or France or the Paris area as home pretty much. It's where I've spent more time than anywhere else, although I've lived in quite a few countries. I haven't lived in the UK for quite a while. I, one remains, obviously, culturally attached culturally it's it's in your dna you are in my case i'm british and you don't want to escape that you don't want to change that but you you pick up quite a lot of the country you're living in so you finish up with having reflexes which are a bit french or even quite french <laughs> and, uh, and and feeling uh, at some distance from your own country although working for the times every day and being in the uk very often one is never far away well, Charles, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm conscious that I've I've detained you in a lay-by um, when uh, when you need to get back uh, get back to uh, Paris. How long how long is your journey going to be? That probably because there's traffic jams. Probably about another four and a half five hours. Well, I'm surprised that you know, being a bigger pilot yourself, you could have just flown, could you? Well, I was going to, but they closed the airport and refused all landings which were not official delegations. Ah. That's that's. I blame Donald Trump. I'm almost certain he's he's, he's to blame for that. Uh, Charles Bowman has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. You're welcome. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.